Welcome to The Issue, a podcast brought to you by F Disruptors, where we bring colourful voices together to talk all things tech, life and futures. Each one tackles a different topic, and this month is called The Honest Issue, which we think when you're talking about tech, life, futures and equality, it's a great place to start. Today, I have two amazing guests who have come fully prepared to be honest about our need to further invest in female capital and share the twists and turns of their careers and lives. Lou Cordwell, OBE, is the CEO of the influential digital agency Magnetic North. They've been doing digital, as she says, since the year 2000 and have an impressive client list that includes the BBC, Google and the City of Manchester. Recently named OBE in the New Year's Honours list, Lou's influence in the area continues as the Northern Director of Albright, a groundbreaking female-led business whose vision includes the opening of their women-only private members clubs in London and soon Manchester and are clear in their ambition to make the UK the best place to be a female leader. Liz Scott is our second guest and is the digital and innovation lead at EY in the Northwest. A self-confessed spinner of plates, combining her work at EY with leading a women in business network, two young children, a shift-working firefighting husband and a hunt for success that feels genuine. I know you two very well. You're impressed by my broadcast voice yet? Because I have been practising, I have Seamless. to tell you both. Where's Debbie? What have you done with her? I have to say I'm going for a certain mood, so I just hope you appreciate it. Just wanted to point that out. Uh, Lou, I'd firstly, start with you. You've recently obviously had your OBE news at the turn of the year, which I think is really exciting. Congratulations on that. But in all fairness, you've been in the digital space for a long, long time, haven't long you? Time. A long yeah. time. So um, I know that you started the business uh, Magnetic North in the year 2000, which seems like a a very long time ago now. <laughs> it is a long um, time I don't ago. even know at that point would they have called it a digital business or no, was it? No, it was called it wasn't. an interactive business. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the one thing I know I've listened to a lot of stories about, especially in those early days, which there was one story in particular I'm hoping you'll bring up. But what was it like in those days for a female founder to start a tech driven business like yours? So I think we, we were unusual for two reasons, well, for lots of reasons, but the there was the female thing and it was definitely a universal kind of 99, 2000, yes, I am the old, where uh, all of the kind of digital, as we now think of them, businesses, tech businesses that you would come across in the kind of agency field, and there weren't many, you know, so you're talking two or three up here, half a dozen in London, and uh, they were all run by boys, very geeky boys, and a lot of coder, you know, so they themselves were practitioners, and mostly it was in London, you know, so you were talking about being Northern and being female. Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a kind of pat on the head, and, you know, in fact, my, my boss, when I left my day job, said, well, when it all goes wrong, you know, we'll have you back. And I think the, the other thing to remember was, 
you know, the internet itself was a bit niche, you know, so, so, <clears throat> which seems a ridiculous thing to say now, but, you know, when, when we started, you know, less than 20% of the British population had internet access. So, so you were making a pun that actually not only could you do it from the north of England, not only did you not have to be a geeky boy, but also the internet was going to be bigger than telly, which was, you know, I left an ad industry, I left WPP, and, and which was founded on making telly, and told them that telly was basically screwed and that this was going to be the future so so I think um it didn't feel like this at the time but it was probably a massive leap of faith <laughs> that you can probably only make at a certain point in your life where you've got no kids and no mortgage and no, you know you've got nothing to lose really the worst that happens is you go back into a day job and everyone was right you know so yeah it, it's it's only when you look back that you kind of see what that was but, um, but I am now the old person who walks around the office and says, so there was a time before the internet when we didn't all have email and we had a research department because you couldn't just Google everything, you know. So Is that uh, like yeah. story time on a Friday? It is. They, all oh, they just around? switch off. You know, they've heard it so many times. No one's interested anymore. They nod sweetly and then go to the pub. So, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great, great uh, sort of way to be, though. But I think... Most importantly, that must have been a very challenging time for you as a woman. I know when I first heard you speak and you talked about that first big contract that you won. And that was a real pivotal moment for the business and allowed it probably then to really grow from there, didn't it? How did that come about? So we, so we, so in the beginning, there was myself and three other founders and um, all of whom within 18 months had gone. And then I had two other founders who joined six months after and stayed for 10, 11 years. Uh, and um, we, were, we all had day jobs. So we were exiting our day jobs. And in our lunch time, we went to pitch for... Um, the Kellogg's had just brought in a new head of digital from the States, who, of course, had been doing digital for a, a year before us because they were well ahead of us. And uh, we'd met this lady at a conference and she said, well, do you know what? I'll give you a crack at a pitch. Come on, you know. And we were just selling dream. You know, we're going to start this thing, and it's going to be like this, and it's going to work like this, and it's going to take the best of the ad industry and strategy and concept and return on investment, all the things you're not getting in digital at the moment, and all the great stuff that's going to be amazing about this new medium. And yeah, I kind of buy the theory. Go on then. You can come and pitch. And we pitched in our lunch break against two very big corporates, both of whom we knew had no tech capability, but they were just very big corporates, and and. Uh, and for reasons I still don't understand, she must have taken pity on us or there was something about us. She thought, sure, I'll give you the project. And so we, and, and our vision was always, I mean, I, I'd worked in the creative industries long enough to know that, you know, even though the regions would argue against it, the reality was in every other creative discipline, whether it was architecture or fashion or design, the dominance of London was never really going to be removed. You know, the world-class centres were um, based in London. But my belief was always we could we could change that with digital, actually, and that, you know, it was the World Wide Web. Therefore, our peers at that time were like two kids in Croatia, two guys who were playing with Flash in Brooklyn. You know, the, the, it was a very global community. And, you know, my, my kind of bold um, Anthony Wilson-esque kind of view was like, well, we invented the computer. You know, we, we why would it not be here? Like, you can run a digital business, so why would we not create an amazing world-class digital community up here and 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 as a startup it was affordable we didn't have to borrow a lot of money to build a business you know so so there were lots of logical reasons and so 
But to do that, we always believed that we would have to have this very blue chip stellar portfolio that you couldn't be knocking on Coca-Cola's door and say, Hi, well, we've just done this website for Baxi Central Heating, but trust us, you know, we could do something amazing for you guys. You had to start with like, oh, I've heard of them. Oh, that works great. You know, so so they gave us a website brief for Tony the Tiger for Frosties, which was their big portfolio brand. And they gave us a purchase order for £100,000 and we stuck it on the wall in my mum's living room. And we had one laptop and a dial-up modem. And we had nobody to build anything, nobody to design anything. And my mum covered the dining room table in cardboard and wrote our names where we were to sit. And she, don't scratch my table or I'll never forgive you. <laughs> and we went, right, that's it. Nobody pays themselves. We don't take anything until we've delivered that bloody website. And so, so we delivered it. It was massive. So we delivered this huge gaming experience, which at that time was getting 200,000 kids a week gaming and was only 20% of the population was it was massive and on that basis within six months we had an office and then you know we kind of grew the team and and within a year we did all of Kellogg's digital work and uh and then Kellogg's we could then knock on the door of Coke and then we could knock on the door of Channel 4 and then we could knock on the door but you know so so we knew that once you had two or three very big blue chip names you could you could kind of knock on anybody's door and really the geography didn't really matter then and we put north in the name because we didn't well one we wanted to make a positive of being northern so it was yeah. magnetic north and two we didn't want to turn up to meetings in london and people would say oh, which bit of london are you in you know we wanted it to be very clear from day one that we were here we were very happy about here and we thought it was a very creative positive place to be so yeah god bless tony God bless. I actually think only a northern agency could do Tony the Tiger justice. It was, it was sheer brass neck, you know, and it's that weird thing, in, you know, in a cult like Kellogg's where they're saying, you know, and the, this is our most sacred brand character, you know, the chief exec, the global chairman knows how many stripes Tony has. Don't mess it up, you know, and so it was like, okay, we understand. The pressure of Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great story, though. I, I think it's great that you led with your northern roots and I think it's, yeah. it, it probably did set you apart hugely mm. in those days Definitely. Um, and it, it, it was lovely for me to I've met you two recently and it's lovely that you're both very honest about your approach and I know Liz you work with a lot of companies in your role in digital and innovation where you helping companies to be disruptive do you find that um, you know, how do you find that they tackle disruption these days? Because actually change is at a pace that we've probably never seen before. But how do you enable them to really maximise on that disruption? Because a lot of businesses starting out like Lou's just described, or even established businesses, are now having to be a bit more scrappy and agile and really roll with things. Are they equipped for that? How do you, how do you help them? So that, that's a great question. And I think we see... We see massive differences in the work that we do. So as an organisation ourselves, we've focused on disruption and what that means to us. You know, we are an organisation that has been going for over 150 years in a fairly similar way to us when it was founded. Um, And if we're all honest about it, if you were going to set up a professional services firm today, 
you wouldn't build it in the way that ours is built. You know, you would pull together strands around data analytics and how you can how you can naturally have customers pushing their data through your systems. You wouldn't have us as advisors kind of coming in at the back end and trying to check that things were right and, and help clients make decisions. So we've been very mindful that our business is um, open for disruption, as is everybody else's. And actually, us having been on that journey for the last kind of two, two and a half years has really informed what we do with clients. So as a big organisation, we have felt the pain of you can't just become agile overnight. You can't just decide that everyone's allowed to be disruptive. You're all given, you know, a carte blanche to do what you want to do and expect that to happen. There's a real piece from a cultural perspective of not only giving people permission to come up with new ways of working, new ways of doing things, new things to deliver to clients, but to actually enable that to happen and create an environment where that can grow and can happen. And that, that for us has been interesting and tough and challenging sometimes, but it really informs what we do with our clients. So when we are going and talking to our very um, traditional client base, which is you know big blue chip organizations, our starting point is let us tell you our journey let us tell you where we started and some of the things that we've done since and then let's talk about what you're doing and how you're addressing it and whether or not there's any kind of gaps in there that we can help with um and it really resonates you know the boards of these big organizations have exactly the same challenges that we have and i think one of the things that puts us in a good position to help is that as well as working with those traditional clients we've worked quite hard over the last couple of years to repackage some of the expertise that we've got within our four walls to really support fast-growing businesses so those is in their own right and actually once you start marrying those two things together so you know you talk to a big blue chip who says um, I've got a real problem with and 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 you know these are these are kind of live examples so big uh, global FMCG manufacturer who says to us one of the things that really bothers me I've got a real issue with is that the retailer has all my consumer data you know they are in between me and my end customer and they know far more about the consumer than I do what can we do about it? Now, we, with our own kind of expertise and our own hat on, can help them think about use cases for different technology, how they might go about solving that problem. Actually, what's just as valuable is, do you know what? I met a startup who are based in somebody's bedroom who are doing fantastic things with retail data and they're joining the dots between some of their manufacturers and retailers and individuals. Let us connect you. You know, there might not always be a piece of work that we have to do. It might just be about, do you know what? I've seen that somewhere else in our network and I think there's some good work that you guys can do together um, so we do you know we do help in terms of kind of paid pieces of work we do help by sharing our own journey but we also help by making those connections because often they can be the most valuable for our clients and are you seeing a lot more female founders coming through or do you think there's still a little bit of work to do there in all honesty I think I think there's work to do and I think We've got some amazing female founders that are running fantastic, fantastic businesses. It can be a challenge to convince them to come out and do the sorts of things that Lou's doing in terms of having a light shone on who they are and what their story is and what they're doing. And we were talking about this as an organisation. We run a programme called Entrepreneur of the Year and we're always really minded to try and make sure we've got an appropriate balance in terms of our founders. And we know these amazing women and we go to them and we say, come and be in this programme. And they say, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I've got a business to run. I've got these things to do in my home life. I've got a million different plates to keep spinning. I've not got time to be part of your programme. And I've got every sympathy in the world for that. 
But then how do we shine a light on what these fantastic women are doing and how do we create the kind of energy and inspiration for the next generation that are coming through? And in all honesty, that's a question that I'm not sure I've got an answer to. I think there's something really telling, particularly in Lou's story there about, you know, there's a, it was a great time to take that chance, you know, with with no ties and no mortgage and no... I think often there's a bit of a disconnect in terms of the bravery. So from a personal perspective, I would only recently feel brave enough to to make a jump like that and be convinced that I could really get something off the ground. But I now happen to be kind of tied down with two small kids and a mortgage and all the other trappings. So there is something about figuring out how to show people a pathway, I think. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I feel like well, we debated. You're right. The attitude to risk is a massive mm. barrier. It's confidence, but also, from age five, six, you look at the kind of risk aversity within young girls versus young boys, yes. and it's palpable. You know, I, I can see, I can see that in my own children. You can see that, and you can see that play through, and that's ultimately manifests itself in terms of women staying away from the difficult subjects like technology and maths and science and and the hard, the risky things like borrowing money to grow, you know, so so you can see how it plays through, plus then I think the role model thing, you know, the the fact there are fewer women that you can look at and see, you know, you need a spectrum of women so that you can find one or two that you see something of yourself, you know, whether it's how they look, how they talk, where they come from, what the story is, what they're passionate, you know, you need to... Uh, you know, is the old adage, isn't it? You, you've got to see it to be it, you know, and so 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 you need enough of those out there and vocal, yes. which women yeah. largely don't feel very comfortable feel. behind a microphone or in front of a camera and they'd yeah. rather just be getting on with the job yeah. and doing it. Um I think you it's kind tough. of need those, don't you? You know, otherwise people don't see anything in anyone, yeah. don't believe that it's for them. So. I think that is so spot on. I heard a TED talk not too long ago, and the little tidbit that stayed with me was that we teach our girls to be perfect yes. and we teach our boys yes. to be brave. Yeah, yes. yeah. And I feel like I try really hard <laughs> for that not to be how things play out yeah. in my house. And yeah, I've got an eight year old that wants everything to be perfect all the time and a five year old little boy who is swinging from the ceiling and and genuinely pushing everything in his little universe to its boundaries, me included. Um, So there is is something in, Mm. maybe it's something in their wiring that we have to try and balance out. I'm not sure, I'm not sure, but there is definitely a piece around risk and the appetite for it, I think. Yeah. We've talked, we've had a, a good conversation before you guys came in today, actually, and I think some of those really strong, entrenched stereotypes mm. are very, very difficult to break down, and they're so subliminal in many ways, aren't they? Very Completely. subliminal. They're, they're not even noticeable to the trained yeah. eye, I yeah. would suggest. But I do think that we quite often create an impression that you are one or the other and for women unfortunately you then have to fall and into a camp that then people say oh brilliant you've you've gone you're a square peg in that square hole great I feel better about that when really it might not be who you are Mm. and for a long long time we tend to allow that to manifest until we there's always a crunch point I feel with women where they say I'm not happy 
I'm not living an authentic life. I don't, I know I'm getting into the car every day and driving, I just don't know where I'm driving to anymore. And I think there's always a point where you either feel able to leap or you just step back and say, this isn't right for me. And interestingly, over the last few months, I've noticed a huge shift in questions that are posed to me when I go to events or if I speak. Years ago, it was about being ambitious and taking the leap and my career pathway. Now, the audience are asking me very emotionally led questions like, how did you feel brave enough to do it? Or how do you feel about crying at work? Which really threw me when I was on the stage because (laughs) I felt it was a really lovely question to ask because as a female founder myself, there are so many times that push me to that edge. Mm -hmm. But I also know that there's also a very invisible line that maybe I don't want to cross where is that me being too real for some people? And does that give an impression to maybe a venture capitalist that I'm not Mm. quite ready for this or I'm risk averse or whatever? Mm. I think women tend to step away, like you mentioned, that they're doing great things, but they don't want that visibility because they're frightened of what making that statement actually means for them. Would Mm. you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, somebody said to me a few weeks ago that what's hard about this point that we're kind of at at the moment is I think we've reached, we've definitely reached a real momentum, haven't we, around the majority of the world agreeing that the current balance and the current situation is pretty wrong. I don't think most people know what to do about that. I think that's the next phase, isn't it? So even, mm. you know, people like us as parents saying yeah. we really don't want that to happen. I've, like you, a boy and a girl what do I do about that? You know, so, so my husband will laugh, you know, if Elsie is five, comes down and says, oh, you look gorgeous. And then he can see me behind yeah. and he'll say, and yet intelligent and empowered, <laughs> Elsie, as well. I can see, you I'm know, so you, so you can see that. Morning. But it's, it's, and it's like, as parents, how do you define those rules? Yeah. And how, what what do we do about all of this next if we want to get to that goal? But I think somebody said to me, you know, the, we're in this strange point where we're all largely, not everyone, agreeing that things need to change. But the current norms are largely defined defined by a male culture, you know. So so they're not crying in the office, and the yeah. you know. So we're in this, and and that's why for a long time, the behaviour in boardrooms and the behaviours to succeed have been defined by a, what happens in a in a patriarchy, you know, in a very very. Ma- so in a sense, we've almost got a kind of redesign job to do now to go. What what does normal and happy and healthy and balanced yeah. look like? in a world where we have gender parity. And I, and I think probably in 20 years we'll stand there hopefully and go, oh, that's what it looks like. And it, and it's a bit like, you know, within um, the kind of uh, campaigning and, and shift around LGBT, where we've moved in 20 years, it is, is uh, we're now in an unrecognisable situation, aren't we, versus 20 yeah. years, you know, my, my the things that my kids wouldn't question would just consider to be normal 20 years ago people would have felt very comfortable kind of pointing out and poking fun at and so in a sense we've got to come to the same point where this is normal this is healthy this is happy and it and it's informed by everybody who's in that community not just a set of people who've been at the top for a long time so I think that that's it we've got to rewrite the rules haven't we and I, I don't know I, where we'll end up with I it. think we'd all agree with that I think f- for me there's definite need to 
create a new narrative yeah. for how yeah. we move forward because I, I, I get concerned that even in my world as a startup and as a female founder mm. in tech as a startup, there's a very, we still lean towards narratives that I, I certainly don't resonate with. So yeah. I don't want to be hustling 24 seven. Yeah. I don't want to be a badass or a girl boss, hashtag. <laughs> and because that for me is not, that that's something that feels like a bit sex in the city-ish from 20 years ago. Yeah. I think it's time for a new normal. Yes. And I think it's time to throw conventional pathways and conventional wisdom out of the window. And I think, you're right to touch on, you know, the gender fluidity, I think, is a real coming of age because yeah. actually what everybody is trying to say is let us all be individual human beings in our own right with the same access to opportunities and the same access to happiness and the same mm -hmm. access to being able to choose the life that we want without fear of judgment mm -hmm. and I think women especially have been in that mix for a long long time but you're right it's definitely time there's hashtag press for progress but for me I need to understand what the action is to make that progress. What's the legacy that we're starting to create? I think that's completely right. And I think your point, Lou, about a redesign is a really important one because it feels like up until, probably up until now, I was going to say up until recently, but up until now, we've been trying to even out the score by just messing with the numbers. Yeah. So if we get this percentage of women into senior leadership or this percentage of women into government, et cetera, et cetera, we will have fixed it. Well, no, you won't have fixed yeah. it because you yeah. will have just messed with the numbers. You know, how do we create how do we create an infrastructure in a world where the the definition of success is redefined such yeah. that it's more open to everybody? And I think having spent a, a while now as part of the kind of corporate world thinking about diversity and inclusiveness, the one thing that I am absolutely sure of is that when we can figure it out and we can redesign it so that people can be their authentic selves and you can define what your path is regardless of whether it's kind of linear or not, everybody will benefit. You know, we talk about this as it's an issue about gender parity. There are a whole load of men who don't fit the traditional successful alpha male role who have been locked out of those opportunities. And that's to the detriment of everybody as well because that type of diversity is equally as important. We have a running joke in the, um, in the office that one of the senior leaders in the team that I'm in across the whole of the UK ticks no diversity boxes at all. He is uh, 45, male, uh, wife, you know, cookie cutter, children, all very glorious, glorious life, um, but he doesn't tick a single diversity box. And yet he's the most diverse person that I've ever worked for in terms of his attitude to how he manages a team, his inclusivity to, to make sure that, you know, nobody is, is, is kind of excluded for, for superficial reasons. But he takes no diversity boxes. Mm. But I love that, though, because actually what that that is part of what we're talking about, which maybe we have been too clinical about diversity and inclusion. And actually, it is a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's actions rather than ticking the boxes yeah. and saying the right things and having the right events and having the right speakers. It's the following actions that make the difference. And yeah. for that guy, it sounds like it's the everyday, small, incremental things that he does that changes people's like, lives. It's like Lou describes with, and my husband does the same thing, by the way, with the face. You know, <laughs> someone comes in the house and says to him, you know, you look beautiful. 
and they can see me tensing up <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the, the question or the, the statement. That reaction from us, I think, is what we need in the workplace. So when somebody makes a statement or makes a decision mm-hmm. that is not as open and inclusive as it could be, it needs for everybody to step back and say, oh, hang on, did we mean that? Or is there another yeah. way of kind of attacking this? Yeah. Because we're doing that now as parents and yeah. we've we've moved on a million miles from where we yeah. were. We need to find a way for that to be okay and the default in the workplace as well. And I, yeah. I think we're a long way off from that. But that will drive those everyday actions. I really think it will. Yeah, I think that's really important. But I read a report recently, actually, that um, was called... It was one of the futures kind of reports. It frightened the life out of me, I have to say, because it fast-forwarded us to, I think, 2028 and described what might have changed or might not have changed and they didn't see the landscape as being much Mm. different to where it was now I don't feel like that I think we've always got to feel hopeful of Mm. change and as you say the movement at the moment and the drive to want gender parity is much more there's much more awareness than we've ever had but if I was to ask you to fast forward to even 2030 what would your hope be that the landscape then looks like imagine we're doing the podcast then it might not even be a podcast I'm sure it wouldn't yeah (laughs) but imagine we fast forward podcast 10 years yes I hope so from from us in the Maldives Uh, my hope, I think, would be that in the same way I kind of look back and talk about 18 years ago, before there was the internet, you know, that, that we'll kind of look back a little bit kind of blurry-eyed at this time when we felt the need to talk about gender parity, you know, that, that there was this time a long time ago that none of my children can remember or imagine when it was a big issue and we needed to sort it out and some people did some things and we sorted it out and that's why the world now looks this way. So I, so I hope we get there, you know, and, and I think these things are about timing, aren't they? So I think we've got this moment in time when there's enough momentum and enough energy and even the people who don't really believe it have been shamed into saying they believe it, you know, and there's, a, there's enough around it that we might get it right. But I really agree with your point about the number, you know, we focus a lot on numbers because numbers mm. is tangible, Yes, get them in the boardroom and get them into... But it's what we're going to do when we get them there. And that's the... Uh, it's that process that will take years and years and years and years, isn't it? And maybe by 2030 yeah. we'll get us to a point where that new normal is everybody being themselves and everybody welcome and everybody having a voice and everybody having strengths and weaknesses, but everybody understanding that that if you complement everybody's strengths and weaknesses in the right way, that makes a great team. And I think that's that's really what the diversity agenda is about, isn't it? Is recognising that those teams and those organisations do really, really well when you've got a bit of everything and nobody's good at everything. So you need lots and lots and lots of different strengths around the table. Yeah, agreed. And of course, you are now the director of Albright up in the north, which I think is fantastic. And that's a female-led organisation, isn't it? With very much uh, looking to open up um, premises and women's only club down in London and soon soon to be Manchester. So they've they've launched this week, haven't they? They have. And I imagine there's been debate and contention about that being female-led and women only. Is it, you know, sexist? What's your thoughts on that? Because it will be a... a, Coming to the North soon, will that be a bit different as well? I I think so. I think, I mean, obviously we... 
we have events and stuff up here already and there's definitely a slightly different feel but the agenda is the same which is you know the the shared ambition of the women involved in that organization is to make the uk the best place to be a female founder uh, and we're a long way off that you know we've got less than three percent of venture capital going into female founded businesses which in today's age is pretty poor less than seven percent of uh, venture capitalists are women you know so so you can see the change so so i think um yeah it's a kind of easy it's a bit kind of daily mail isn't it to go oh this is sexist against men because why could so men are very welcome you know somebody's got to brew up you know so i think <laughs> no men men are genuinely welcome as guests and they can come but it's this uh i suppose it's it's back to the normalizing so for a long time those of us who've been in you know private clubs and it's a little bit of a novelty, you know, to be a woman and be part of that community. In a sense, you've got to kind of flip something the other way. Um, and what we know is that women really value community and network. It's hard to come by in, in the professional, uh, whether you're a founder or a, just a woman in business or run your business, those networks are scarce. So actually squishing people together in places is a great way for people to be able to collaborate, whether that's professionally, find opportunities to work together and, and, and create business, or just talk about stuff and share experiences and build networks. So so I think uh, it's largely, for me, about community, the Albright brand, and, and allowing women to um, share stories, get to know one another, solve problems, move things on, and... Uh, in doing that, give people the confidence in the networks to start businesses, grow businesses, be founders, and create their own cultures where they then can define the rules and re redesign all the things that we've talked about. So, but yeah, I think the flavour of what Albright will be here will be different as it will be in other. I mean, already you know, there's conversations with other cities and fantastic. So I think yeah, it's um, it, it it's a very exciting time I think for them and yeah, the reaction to the club has been massive this week. It's great. I love it. I've loved the coverage. And I do see that the contention and the debate will, will rage and continue. I'm sure it will. But when you talk about it in a way of community and network, it absolutely makes sense to me. You know, yeah. if I, I know that over the years, if I ask one of my friends or colleagues to go to a networking event, they look at me like they want to kill me. And, <laughs> and I have to actually say, no, there is wine, you know, to get them yeah, there. So yeah. networking. Even just the word networking. People go, networking. I, don't, I don't do networking. Well, there is, yeah. Do you want to come meet some people, have a glass of wine? Oh, I'll come to yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've seen how different it can be when you, again, shift the narrative around things. So with my F disruptors, when I did my pilot, I took um, 10 girls up to Newcastle to launch F disruptors up in the Northeast. And I gave them all their business cards and I said, well, well, when we've finished, you're going to work the room and network. And they said, well, what is networking? I said, well, it's having a chat with adults who actually might want to hear what you've got to say. And they said, brilliant. And they honestly ran into that room. They, I didn't see them for the next hour and a half. <laughs> I just spotted them. I just stood in the corner at one point, spotted them chewing the ear off a lot of adults <laughs> for about an hour and a half. And then, honestly, we came out, got on the train to come back to Liverpool. 
they were buzzing and all they kept saying was, can we do more networking? We absolutely love networking. And I was sitting there thinking, you're taking the mickey, you know. <laughs> is, is this teenage speak for actually we're really, we're really laughing at you now? But, but absolutely not. And I said, well, what is it about networking that you like? And they just said, we felt listened to. And that was lovely for me because that was 13-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls, 17-year-old girls who probably, you know, at school sometimes think, I don't have this this kind of conversation mm. where somebody is just purely saying, what about you? How could I help yeah. you? What's your aspirations? Where could I take your dreams? And that's what happened. And it was so magical, but it wasn't like mm. the networking, as you mm. say. You mention that word and people mm. think, no, I'd rather... That's such a great life skill, isn't it? That that experience will already set them up for their career, whatever path they choose. To not have that fear, it's great. Yeah, it is. And I think women need that, but maybe, as you say, they need a a space that is absolutely defined around that need. We have to remember as well that places, you know, whether it's a a physical place or or an organisation or a movement, you know, whichever form you look at, all, all bright in respect of... It doesn't have to be, and it won't be, all that those women do. So, you know, we we run a women's network in the northwest through EY, and um, I really, really had a tough time when someone asked me to lead that. It was about four or five years ago, and I got a phone call from uh, the lady that runs a network in London, and she said, we've allocated a budget to Manchester, and nobody spent it, and I know you, so can you crack on? And I thought, oh God, you know, I don't know if I want to run a women's <laughs> network. What is that? Like some sort of dreadful knitting circle. Just not not my bag at all. So I spoke to a couple of um couple of my my kind of power women um that 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 I lean on for various things and ummed and ahed about it. And I just happened to tell my husband over dinner, you know, they've asked me to lead this network, I don't know if I fancy it. Spoken to Chrissy, spoken to Helen, you know, we've debated it and he said so and also my husband has nothing to do with the profession or tech at all. But he has these moments of super sharp insight. And he said to me, um, so hang on a minute. They've asked you to run a women's network and you don't think there's any value in it. But in making that decision, you have checked with your own women's network. What is wrong with you? And it was like a light bulb moment. So actually, yes, I lean on all these women for you know things that I need and advice and insight. And I'm really lucky to have that. Mm. So actually, if we could create that for other people. And the one thing that we've seen over the years is that it becomes like a starting point. It's a safe yes, place yeah, to go and yeah, yeah. practice some of those skills. And, you know, you get to a certain level of seniority and somebody says, right, go out and win new business. And you think, oh, God, how am I going to do that? Well, I tell you what, I'll go to a women's networking event and I know some friends are going to be there. I know that lady. And then you go off and do other things. You know, Albright won't be the entirety of, yeah. of what people do, but what a great place to start it and practice some of those skills in a in a safe environment i i think it's amazing i can't wait for us to have i can't wait all bright in the north and i'm speaking at your event next week so i'm looking forward to meeting your network because you have told me they're quite vocal they are quite we have to warn all of our speakers (laughs) that they're quite vocal we're now uh, completely at capacity we're at waiting list stage for next week so no pressure debbie you know bring your broadcasting voice you're getting your own back because i asked you to be on my podcast don't you but we're feeling our way Well, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your thoughts and being so honest about how far we've come, how far we honestly still need to get um, get to. And I think it's really nice, though, just to have different perspectives that, that sort of can tell the world that things are moving, but, you know, a bit more diversity, a few more voices are really going to make the difference, aren't they? 
Thank you so much for coming Thanks, in. Everybody. It's Thanks, been Debbie. delightful. <laughs>